we are a few weeks into a study on the New Testament letter of 1 John, and we've titled this series of messages, So That You May Know. And you're like, so that we may know what? <laughs> Where does that come from? Um, and that phrase is taken directly from uh, the Apostle John and what he says at the very end of this book. At the very end of this letter, he says, here's why I wrote this thing. I wrote this thing so that you may know that you have eternal life. First John 5, 13, John says, I, write, I wrote this letter to you so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life so that you may know, so that you may be assured that you have eternal life. You know, one of the more frequent questions or categories of questions I get asked as a pastor is um, people will, will ask, they'll say, uh, how do I know for sure that I have eternal life? Um, if you've been around church, some people might say, uh, how do I know for sure that I'm saved? Um, others may say, how do I know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die? Or how do I know for sure that my faith is genuine, that I really mean it, that I'm really sincere? Or I've heard this a lot uh, with young adults and with college students, and it's, um, how do I know if I really believe this stuff or if I just inherited it from my parents? Is, the, is my faith genuine? And these are all really good questions because the New Testament certainly warns that there are people who have false assurance of their faith. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, he said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not preach sermons? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? But then I will declare to them, I never knew I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we read a passage like this from Jesus, and you're like, whoa. And we read that, and it's a warning. And it can spook us sometimes into wondering whether or not we can really know that we have assurance of our faith. And there are many, many, many faithful Christians who are distressed by their doubts. Am I really genuine? Am I really certain? Is, am I going to meet Jesus and him say, I never knew you? And there are many faithful, godly, uh, genuine believers who are plagued with doubts. But John writes the letter of 1 John for faithful Christians. Remember, he says, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John writes this letter for Christians who lack assurance of their faith. And he writes this letter to help them diagnose and discern the genuineness of their faith and to comfort them that you, you can know. You can have assurance of your salvation. He says, I write these things to you so that you may know that you, can have, that you have eternal life. You can know, so that you may know. So we're a few we, we're deep into the fall now. We're like a month in, and we're starting to feel it with the weather. Um, what that means is, um, some of you people care about Halloween. I look right past Halloween to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Could care less about Halloween. I'm ready for Christmas time. But in about a month, maybe six weeks or so, uh, in my house, the Christmas tree is going to go up, and we're going to start watching Christmas movies. And you know, we we love them all. Uh, we love you know, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, we love uh, Home Alone. We love all of them. 
But the one that gets that my kids love and is kind of the modern classic that gets played over and over again in our house is Elf. And there's the scene, you know, where Buddy the Elf has come from the North Pole. He's in New York City to meet his dad. And he gets a job at a department store, Gimbel's department store. And he's walking through the department store one day and he sees all these Christmas decorations. And he goes, and he asks his manager, he says, well, what is that? What is this? What are, what are all these decorations? And he says, this is the North Pole. And Buddy goes, no, it isn't. <laughs> I've, I grew up in the North Pole. I know what the North Pole looks like. This isn't the North Pole. He's like, yes, it is. This is the North Pole. And he's like, all right, well, if you say so, whatever, it's not. But, you know, and, uh, and then he asked the manager, he said, well, why are all these decorations up? And the manager says, well, tomorrow Santa Claus is coming. And what does Buddy say? Santa! I know him! And it's like the classic moment in the movie. And, there's this, and then Santa Claus comes the following day. And uh, yeah, this is Will Ferrell looking awesome, just hilarious. And then Santa Claus comes the next day, and Buddy's so excited, and he goes up to him, and Santa, or Buddy immediately recognizes, he's like, this is not Santa. Something's not right. You don't look like Santa. You don't talk like Santa. You don't act like Santa, and you don't smell like Santa. You smell like beef and cheese, he says to the, to the fake Santa. Listen, Buddy the Elf grew up in the North Pole. He grew up surrounded by the North Pole. He grew up, he knew Santa Claus. He, I mean, he grew up, Santa Claus was in his life. He knew Santa Claus. And so because Buddy lived in the North Pole, because Buddy had spent a lifetime in relationship with Santa Claus, he could spot a fake North Pole and a fake Santa Claus from a mile away. And the Apostle John has known Jesus for a long time at the time that he's writing, writing this letter. He's walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He has walked in the kingdom of God for quite some time. John's an elderly man at the time that he's writing this letter. And he knew Jesus. He says at the very beginning of the letter, I've seen him, I've touched him, I've heard him, I knew him. I know him, John says about Jesus. You know, John refers to himself throughout his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is how well John knew Jesus. So this is a guy who, he saw Jesus heal the sick. He saw Jesus forgive the sinners. He saw Jesus change lives. And John, I mean, he's, he's been a, an apostle, a pastor for decades at this point, which means he's seen probably hundreds, maybe thousands of people throughout his ministry come to know Jesus and mature in their faith. And I imagine that in John's ministry, he's seen very genuine believers doubt their assurance and he's probably seen very, some false believers mistakenly assured in his ministry. But he knows Jesus. He walked with Jesus. And he knows what a life truly transformed by Jesus looks like. And in this letter, he clues us in on the characteristics of genuine faith. He says, if you possess these characteristics, you can be assured that your faith is genuine. So our text today is, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 2. And he begins like this. He says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, John, in the letter of 1 John, he uses a method of argumentation uh, called amplification. So, uh, 1 John is very different from a lot of the other New Testament letters. So, if you take Paul, for example, the Apostle Paul, his letters, he's an attorney. He's an attorney. Um, uh, Paul, you know, he has like a, a lawyerly sort of way of making an argument. He says, I want to convince you that D is true. So, he says, A plus B plus C Therefore, D. This is how the Apostle Paul sort of makes his arguments. John's not like this. He's like a songwriter. You know, he's got a chorus that he sings over and over and over again. And John, in the letter of 1 John, he says in the first couple of verses, he says, I want you to know, be assured that you have eternal life. And he's, there's three things, and then he tells us how. He's, there's, there's three characteristics that those who uh, have a genuine faith possess. And then he just repeats them over and over and over again throughout the letter. He amplifies his point over and over and over again. And the, he says that a genuine faith possesses three things. Knowledge of God, obedience to God, and love for others. And he just repeats these themes over and over and over again. And in our sermon graphic, so at the beginning of our, uh, you see this graphic there, there's the triangle, right? And you're like, what is this triangle all about? Well, it represents these three angles or these three themes of knowledge, obedience, and love. And so we're going to call it, for the rest of this uh, series, we're going to call it the triangle of assurance or the triangle of genuine faith. Now, this is not, John's not saying this is how you are saved, He's saying, if you are a Christian, these are the elements that, are in, that, are, that ought to be present in your life. How are you saved? You're saved by the grace of God, faith in Jesus, uh, through the, by the grace of God. That's how you're saved, by faith in Jesus. But John says that there are these three things that if they're present in your life, they indicate pretty well that you have a genuine faith. He says, knowledge, obedience, and love. And so knowledge. Um, th- these are, um, uh, he says, do you know God? If you're wondering, can I be assured of my faith? Can I be assured of my faith? If these three things are present in your life, this ought to give you assurance that your faith is genuine. So John will talk about knowledge. Do you know God? Do you have a love for God? Do you know God's character? Do you know what he has done for you? Do you know how he sees you? Do you know what the scriptures say about him? And do you know what the scriptures say about what Jesus has accomplished for you? Have you experienced the presence of God in your life through your knowledge of him? John says in verse 3, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him. If you know God, that's, that's a good start. And then he says, obedience. Do you obey God's commands? Not, not are you perfect, but do you have a heart? Do you, do you love God's commands? David said, uh, I meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. I love the law of the Lord. How could David say that? He loved God's commands. Do you desire to obey God? Do you, does it grieve you when you sin? Or do you, are you just apathetic towards your own sin? Does, if, does it grieve do you? Do you have a heart that wants to obey God's commands? And then finally, love. Do you love God's people? I heard one teacher say it like this. Do you love people in such a way that at your funeral, 
they will have no doubt that you knew God. Do you love people in such a way that they are convinced that you truly know God? Uh, John says in verse 9, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So there are these three angles, these three tests that John gives us. Do you know God? Do you obey God? And do you love God's people? And if you assess your life and you go, yes, I'm doing these things. Not perfectly, but my heart and my soul are pointed in this direction. Then you can sleep tonight knowing that your faith is, is, is genuine and your eternity is sealed. Now, one note here with the triangle, okay? The triangle is not a test to determine other people's faith, okay? You're not going to print this off and give it to somebody else. Hey, I think you're, you're doing great. I want it too, but this one you struggle. This is for you and your heart, and, and this is between you and the Lord. This isn't for other people. But over the next several weeks, we're going to look at each of these three themes, these three tests that John elaborates on over and over and over again. And today we're looking at knowledge. How does a knowledge of God give us assurance of our faith? If you notice throughout the first two chapters of this letter, John has been pretty subtle, uh, but he has been sprinkling all kinds of deep truths and theologies about the character and the work, uh, the character of God and the work of Jesus uh, all throughout this letter. So in short, John has been teaching theology and doctrine in the first couple of chapters. So in chapter one, verse one, John talks about the eternality of Jesus. Jesus was from the beginning, 1 verse 1. Chapter 1 verse 2, he talks about the incarnation uh, of Jesus. He was made manifest to us. We have seen him. We have heard him. He's talking about Jesus, uh, the incarnation. Uh, Chapter 1 verse 5, John speaks of uh, God's character and his perfection and his holiness. God is light and in him there is no darkness. In chapter 1, verse 9, John writes about the faithfulness and the justice of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Last week, we looked at chapter 2, verse 1, where John reminded us that Jesus is our advocate. That's a theological understanding of what Jesus is doing for us when we sin. He's advocating to the Father for for justice. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 3. John will speak of God's adoption of us. These are all theological concepts that John is just peppering throughout this letter. And often, you know, we think of theology as a hobby for nerds and pastors. You know, (laughs) you're like, theology, that's what pastors do, right? But theology, it's not meant to be um, an academic exercise to attain facts and opinions so you sound smart. Theology, the purpose of theology is to know God and to experience greater intimacy with him. You do not have to have a PhD or a shelf full of books written by dead white guys named John. John Owen, John Wesley, John Calvin, John of the Cross, John Bunyan. You know what? You don't have to look smart and impressive and and all this to, 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 to be a theologian. Uh, The scriptures say that if we want to come to God, we must come to him like a little child. Theology is not meant for the people with big brains. It's meant for all of us. Uh, Jesus did not say, come to me like a seminary professor. He said, come to me like a child. So when we talk about theology, we're not talking about big, high, lofty concepts. We're talking about knowing God's character and who God is and what he has done. And even children can understand this. 
And so when John speaks about the character of God, or when he talks about all these little, these doctrines, we ought to pay close attention because he's not just giving us facts. He wants to give us truths and gifts that can assure us of our standing with God. And so I just want to give you kind of a one-point sermon. Uh, that doesn't mean it's going to be short, but it's just a one-point sermon. It's going to be a long point is what it is, all right? So get comfortable, all right? Knowledge of God's character. This is the point of the sermon today. Knowledge of God's character leads to greater assurance of our faith. Last week, we looked at the passage uh, where John says, do not sin, but when you do, you have an advocate in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, some of you reached out this week and you said that the truth of that, uh, th- that, that, that truth that John gave us, that that encouraged you. Um, that, that that was an encouraging theological truth for you to get your mind around. And because we all know that we should not sin, right? Like that we all know sin is bad. We don't want to do it. And most of you, I mean, I know your heart. You don't want to sin. Like our desire is not to sin, but yet we all do. And when we do, we often experience shame and guilt and these feelings of just we hide from God, we hide from others, and we beat ourselves up. And John says, don't do that. When you sin, remember that you have an advocate in Jesus. Jesus is your advocate. That means that even in your worst moments, Jesus doesn't abandon you, but he goes before the Father and reminds the Father what he has done for you so that you don't have to be punished for your sin. I was talking with Emily, our kids director, this afternoon. We were talking about this passage, and she mentioned how Satan will always tempt us to sin by saying, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's not no big deal. God will forgive And then we do it, and Satan changes his tactic immediately. You know what I'm talking about? How could you have done that? God could never forgive that. How could you have done that? God is furious with you. And see, if you don't have the knowledge that Jesus is your advocate in that moment, you will crumble in shame. Because you will have uncertainty about God's love for you in that moment. You will lack assurance that your faith is genuine. You will believe the lies of the enemy. You'll think God has abandoned you and you will crumble. So do you see why knowledge about God's character, why theology is crucial? Truths about God are are gifts that God gives us so that that we can hold on to in the moments where we have doubt and uncertainty. So in this passage that we're looking at today, John adds kind of one more theological truth that we can sort of add to our understanding of God. And it will help us have assurance of our faith and God's character when we have doubts. And it's this, Jesus is our propitiation. Chapter two, verse two, he says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And propitiation is a big theological word. That may intimidate you. You may be tempted to go to sleep right now. But if you have, can learn how to place an order at Starbucks, you can learn what propitiation means, all right? If you know the difference between an Americano and a macchiato and a latte, you can learn theological terms. If your child can learn common core math, can I get an amen? You can learn propitiation, Okay. What does it mean that Jesus is our propitiation? This is a big, huge word. The word propitiation simply means that a claim against you has been fully satisfied. So, for example, if you were to, on your drive home this afternoon, or maybe if you're driving sometime, if you were to uh, not pay attention and you were to cause a traffic accident, 
and you did several thousand dollars worth of damage to someone else's vehicle, they have a charge against you. Uh, you a very specific amount of money, usually probably a lot of money. And, and, and you have to pay that charge. They, they, can, they, they, they have a charge against you. You wrecked my car. It's going to cost this much to fix it. You owe me this much. And you are in their debt until you pay the sum of those charges. But once you pay the sum total of those damages, that person is now propitiated. And they have no more claim against you. And they have no more claim on your money. They must now leave you alone. The claim has been propitiated. Another way to look at it is uh, think of our criminal justice system. Uh, Every crime demands some form of payment or punishment. And the public, uh, when there is crime, the public is rightfully angry and wrathful over crime. And so we demand that our politicians and that our, uh, our prosecutors hold people to justice. And we demand that there be payment of some sort or penalty when people violate our laws. So when someone commits a crime, we entrust our justice system to hand down a sentence according to the severity of their crime. It may be a fine. It may be a jail sentence. But once that person has paid their penalty or served their sentence, their their crime is now propitiated. And the scriptures tell us that the wages or the propitiation cost of our sin is death. The scriptures tell us that God is holy and that he demands payment for our violation against his good laws. Our sin must be propitiated. Just like if somebody commits a crime right outside these doors, the public is just in wanting there to be penalty for that crime. God is just in being angry at our sin because it's a violation of his good commands. And the scriptures say that the propitiation cost of our sin is our own death. But John says, Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus propitiated the holy wrath of God against our sin by suffering the full penalty in our place. On the cross, every ounce of the penalty of your sin and mine was placed on Jesus and he paid the penalty once and for all. He is our propitiation. The scriptures say that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Another way to say that is we will be, our sin will be propitiated. So faith in Jesus, in the work on the cross, and his propitiation for us, our faith in him, he propitiates our sin. So this week, I got a medical bill that I'd already paid. And so I called the medical company, and I said, I'm not paying this. And they said, why are you not paying this? I said, it's already been propitiated. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, "Uh, my bad, I'm a pastor. You should come to church. I'll tell you all about it. Um, No, I... I said, I I paid it last month. I said, you need to update your system. My point was, that bill has already been propitiated. I don't have to pay it again. And the same with your sin. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, your sin has already been paid for. You don't have to pay for it. And so when you sin, you remember that Jesus is advocating on your behalf. I've already paid for it, Father. I've already paid for it, Father. I've already paid for it, Father. You don't hold it against him or her because it's already been propitiated. Do you see how that gives us assurance in these moments of our doubt? I'll tell you, when I have my biggest doubts about my faith is when I blow it at the worst moments. I go, my goodness, I can't, am I, how could I have done that? And then I remember that it's been 
propitiated. I don't have to pay for that. Jesus has already done it. You see, God, knowledge of God's character and knowledge of the work of Jesus leads to greater assurance in my faith. John reminds these readers of who Jesus is. He's their advocate. He's their propitiation. What is he doing? He's encouraging them with truth and knowledge. He's saying, take this knowledge of who God is, and on the moments where you doubt, you pull that out of the toolbox, and you remember that he's your propitiation, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then John adds at sort of the end of this section in verses 12 through 14, just a a bit of encouragement. And, you know, as I read through the New Testament, as we've been studying this letter of 1 John, you know, you've got the Apostle Paul, you've got Peter, you've got other New Testament writers, you have James. They were all apostles. Most of them were apostles. They were pastors. And I think I've come to the conclusion that if I were to pick who would be my pastor of the New Testament authors, I think I'd pick John. Uh, John has such a pastoral sense of encouragement, the way he encourages us. He warns us, don't sin, don't sin. But when you do, and then he comforts us and encourages us with the truth of God. And he sort of closes out this section by offering encouragement. And he's a good pastor, so he recognizes that every person is different. And there's people of different ages and stages in their faith. And look at how he encourages them with truths and knowledge of God specific to their doubts and their uncertainties. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So what he's doing is he's giving each person a spiritual truth, a knowledge about God's character and his work that they can hold on to in this stage of their life. And so to the spiritual children, babies, those who are new in their faith, he reminds them of the forgiveness of God and the fatherhood of God. Because he knew that the greatest threat to their assurance was that they would be prone to fear. Fear that because they messed up, that their sin was separating them from God's love. And so he says, hey, here's a theological truth for you if you're afraid. I'm writing to you so that you know that your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you so that you know that God is your father and he is a good father and there is not one thing you could ever do that would cause him to abandon you. Be assured of that. And then he writes to the spiritual teenagers, the young adults, those like me who uh, we've been following Jesus for some time but we're not seasoned quite yet. Uh, uh, We're still growing in our knowledge of truth and we're faithful Uh, but we're easily distracted or we're easily tempted. We're still easily seduced by worldly things. And he comforts those sort of in middle life and young adulthood. He says he comforts them with the victory of Jesus. He says, I'm writing to you to tell you that Jesus has defeated your sin and that he's given you the Holy Spirit and that you can and you will overcome. So don't give up. Don't grow discouraged. Keep pressing forward. You are overcoming this. You are strong and the word of God abides in you. And then he writes to the spiritual fathers and mothers, those of you who've been following Jesus for a long, long time, veterans in the faith, those who've been following Jesus for decades, those who may have deep, profound wisdom and great experiences with God, but he comforts them with eternity. John says, look, I know you may look back on your life now as it's coming to a close, and you may have regrets, and you may have some discouragement that things are not 
Things didn't turn out quite how you hoped. But I'm writing you to encourage you that Christ has been from the beginning. And I want you uh, to, and that, and that Christ knows no end. Your story is always being written and God went before you and he will go after you. See, he reminds these seasoned Christians that Jesus is eternal and that he has no end, that he's always been and he always will be and that right now he's preparing a place for them and that even if death takes them from this earth, they will see Jesus face to face and they will live forever with him. You see, John is comforting his people with these truths about God's character And those truths give them assurance that God loves them, that God is not abandoning them, and it helps them know God, not just know about God, but know God more deeply. And I want you to understand this. Knowledge about God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. We study theology, we we, we accumulate knowledge about God so that we can know God. It has to sink in. And so I'm asking you this afternoon, has it sunk in for you? Jesus as your advocate, your propitiation, your father, your forgiver, your victory, your future, your hope. Do these truths lead you to greater intimacy with God? So for me, we just sang that song, Same God. And it was like, uh, you know, uh, I'm calling on the God of David who made a shepherd boy courageous. How was David courageous? Because he knew who God was. Like whenever he defeated Goliath, all everybody else was so scared they had forgotten God's faithfulness. And David walks up and he's like, you're not going to defy Who is this giant who's defying the living God? And so David walks out into battle, a little runt, and goes and slays a giant because David, uh, he knew God because he knew about God. His knowledge about God led to knowledge of God and intimacy with God and power in his life because of that. And I've had two moments, um, at least two moments in my life where I see, I can look back and say that the truths I was taught sunk in and became channels for personal experiences with God in my life. The first was my freshman year of college. Many people, you know, the story of freshman year of college, right? Um, You go to college, there's all these new temptations, new opportunities, there's this freedom. And I stepped into that. And I remember, um, I mean, I was doing things I thought I never would do, hanging out with people I thought I would never hang out with, um, my faith was uh, superficial at best. My attendance at church was non-existent. And to put it simply, I had drifted. I was a prodigal. I questioned the genuineness of my faith. I was overwhelmed with shame over things I had done. And I was like, if I really knew God, would I really do all these things? And I remember just having these moments of deep despair and shame. But the Holy Spirit, I remember one night specifically in my dorm room, my roommate was out, he was, he was somewhere else, and I was in my dorm room alone, and I was just overwhelmed with the weight of my sin. And I was thinking, is this really genuine? And the Holy Spirit started flooding my mind with things that I was taught in kids' church when I was a kid, and things that I'd been taught growing up in the faith. And I remember in that moment, just thinking of that story of the sinful woman caught in adultery where Jesus gets down on his knees and he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I remember just being overwhelmed with that truth. God does not condemn me. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And I remember vividly, I didn't even know I had memorized this verse, but it was somewhere here, and God dropped it here on that night. Romans, I believe it's Romans 12, verse 1. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I remember just receiving that, standing up in my life, never being the same after that moment. That was a watershed moment in my life. It was where knowledge, truths that I learned about God at some point in my life sunk in and led to intimacy with God in that moment. The second experience I had is a little more recent. Uh, some of you guys know that in February of 2020, um, I had sort of an emergency situation where I was rushed to the hospital. My blood pressure was 85 over 56. And I was showing the beginning stages of septic shock. And I truly... Um, thought I was dying. I told my wife, I thought I was dying. I told my dad. Um, and you would think, you know, you think about death, right? And you think that in that moment, you'll be terrified, don't you? You're like, how will I get through that? And uh, you would think, you would think uh, that I expected that if my life ever came to that, there would be fear of death. What's next? There would be fear for my family. Who's going to take care of them? Maybe even regrets over my life, like I missed opportunities and sins. And, but I just remember uh, there were two moments. There was a time where my wife was driving me to the ER, and then there was a time where I was with my dad. I was telling my dad where my, where my last will and testament was. I mean, it was at that point. And you would think, right, that there would be all this fear. And I just remember the Holy Spirit reminding me all the truths I know about God. He's the good shepherd. And he's the wonderful counselor. And that even if something were to happen to me, he would shepherd and he would comfort my family. And then the Holy Spirit reminded me that although my sins are many, that his mercy is more. And that if something were to happen to me and I were to stand before God, he would look at his ledger and he would say, well, it's all been propitiated. <laughs> Welcome. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I remember in that moment thinking, I should be terrified right now. But I had this peace that, you know, the scriptures talk about peace that passes understanding. I felt it. And I experienced God's presence in that moment because of knowledge of things I knew about God's character became real to me in that moment. You see, my knowledge about God led to moment, a moment where I experienced the knowledge of God, which has given me assurance in those moments where my doubt was strong. Like Buddy the Elf, I can say with no arrogance or pride, but I can say I know him. And I hope you can say the same. Do you know that he is your propitiation? Do you believe when you sin, do you look inward to yourself and your failures and your mistakes, or do you look to him and believe he's my propitiation? You can know God. John has written this letter so that you may know that you have eternal life. And I'm standing up here speaking to you as your pastor, telling you that you can know. John wrote in, John, in his gospel, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And so I invite you today to believe in him. And you will know that you have eternal life. Let me pray for you, Crossroads. God, we thank you that we can have assurance of our faith, not based on anything we've done,
but based on the knowledge of what you have done. We know that you are good and that you are kind. Your, your word tells us. We know that you gave your son as a propitiation for our sins. And that if we have surrendered to you, that we no longer have to pay the debt that we owe. But we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so God, I pray that that truth sink from the head to the heart uh, to these dear people whom I'm standing in front of. God, I pray that we would all be assured of our faith and our knowledge of you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.